Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. So another helter-skelter week in markets then. Lots of interesting corporate earnings from the likes of Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Meta Results were very well received last night by the markets too. We also had a load of important economic data. The central bankers giving us their latest and wobblier markets in truth than we've seen for a little while with some returning bank and other strains jolting investor nerves a bit. So in short, Will, plenty again for us to cover today. Yeah, it's a lot, Miles, isn't it? I mean, I think it's particularly hard, uh, you know, as we always talk about trying to hear the signals through all the noise. I mean, that's particularly hard at the moment, I think, for what it's worth. Yeah, no, absolutely. But let's have a stab at locating whatever signal there is out there for investors. And why don't we perhaps start off with the overall picture and then we can just drill down into the nitty gritty detail a bit later. Where do we stand after all of this data and news flow this week? And how do the range of likely outcomes for the US and global economy now sit? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're massively changed, to be honest, Miles. I mean, uh... Personally, I think there's uh, an expanding strand of potential outcomes at what you might describe as the top of the distribution. So if you're, you know, you're thinking probabilistically about the outcome, the US and global economy doesn't just uh, have, you know, as we're looking at it now, there's not just one path ahead. There will be. But if you're thinking about it logically, there can be you know, a full range of paths and you've got to try and imagine that, you know, that full range as much as possible. And at the top of the distribution, like I say, I think there's a, an expanding strand surrounding a cold, so-called kind of melt-up. Uh, we discussed that before. The US economy already motoring. It doesn't slow. Uh, maybe even it accelerates. Interesting times. Maybe sounding a little bit like the second half of the 1990s, perhaps? Yeah, you know, something like that. But And certainly yesterday's USISM uh, survey at the Institute of Supply Management, which, as you know, this is one of the more authoritative lead indicators in large part uh, because of its grey hairs. It's been around the longest, so you can measure it against the most cycles. Um, there was a real pickup in all the right parts of the survey, which should be a source of significant encouragement, I think. Uh, on your 1990s comparison, I will be boring, as always, and remind listeners unnecessarily, I'm sure, that historical parallels like this can be dangerous and that they can lead one to underestimate what's different this time, uh, which is mostly a lot. But yes, the melt-up scenario where the US actually stays strong and the stock market with it, uh, this scenario would perhaps hinge on a kind of, you know, rapid adoption of generative AI and the other kind of bits of the technological frontier, which we are certainly seeing, and that it lives up to at least some of the hype as a general purpose technology. Uh, And there are similarities to the 1990s, you know, the effect of a rate rising cycle blunted by, you know, productivity takeoff. Uh, And in the 90s, it was, you know, the advent of the internet. And you can think of Cisco and the NVIDIA role, uh, the picks and shovels play in amongst the gold rush. But keep in mind, there's probably more that is different than similar always. True. But as I said last week, always good to uh, have your glass half full. But we do, I'm afraid, have to touch on the other end of that distribution you referenced. So those possible darker near term outcomes, the R word, the kind of recession scenario. It's not going away, is it, in terms of market commentary? Uh, No, and it never will, I think. (laughs) Yes. Uh, yeah, yes, it's hard to handicap whether the odds of something nasty are increasing. Um, I think they're about the same. Again, personally, I mean, there's a sort of range of views on our team on this. But, you know, I think it's far from your base case, but certainly worth thinking about. 
Um, a wobbling U.S. regional bank certainly brought the potential for an accident back to front of mind this week. Uh, again, though, I think we have to be a bit careful of getting too absorbed and looking for stuff to go wrong. You know, many investors, I think, are just locked into that idea. Uh, you know, recession indicators such as the yield curve have been going off like, you know, air raid sirens for some time now with the backing of economic theory and, you know, and some of the practice around the effects of higher interest rates. And certainly it would be rare in post-war history for these indicators and this theory about interest rates to be kind of, you know, way wide at the mark. However, rare is certainly not impossible. And this is where we fall foul of having to fish in a very kind of shallow statistical pool when trying to make rules about the economy. You need lots and lots of observations to be able to establish rules and even norms. So, you know, in sporting terms, it's hard to say. I'm going to go cricket first, I think. It's hard to say. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, You know I will. But yeah, so-and-so is a world-beating bat if he or she has only played five games. It's, you know, it's towards the back end of a career when they've played hundreds of games on all sorts of pitches against all sorts of bowlers in all manner of conditions. That's when you can really establish what they're actually like uh, and where they sit in the pantheon of the, you know, greats. The history of all sports, of everything, is full of individuals who tried for a few games and looked a world beater, but ultimately didn't deliver beyond that promise for a number of reasons. With recessions, interest rate cycles, and even how investments should behave around these things, we're really looking at only a handful of incidents within each country since the Second World War. That really, really limits our ability to talk about rules and norms. It doesn't stop our industry filling the airwaves with it, of course, but anyway. You didn't mention the Six Nations. <laughs> Resisted the urge. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's exciting. The game tonight is going to be a belter, I hope. But yes, yes yeah. there's lots of good sport coming. Absolutely. And um, it, it is interesting what you say there, because I do sometimes think all we talk about in this industry, as you kind of alluded to earlier, is the next recession, which in some respects, right, is strange. Because when you think about it, given their relative rarity compared to the norm of sort of bubbling through and and growth being the norm rather than the exception. I, I guess something to do with the reputational symmetry, perhaps? Yes, I think I think that's right, Miles. You know, like when they come along, they're so shocking. And we know as investors, you know, our behavioural guys, they've long been telling us that we, we feel losses more than gains, you know, emotionally. To that extent, there's a reputational boost in being occasionally right for commentators, you know, the talking heads on recession, even if you're stop clocking it, so to speak. So, yeah, I think I think it is a function of kind of, you know, marketing to a certain extent. <laughs> Got it. And, and the other question I had in mind thinking about that 90s comparison is really whether we are already in a sort of, I don't know, 99, 2000 sort of phase where valuations are perhaps bordering on being a little bit silly and hype has already gone way beyond those companies' ability to deliver on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's very difficult to say always, Biles. I'm I'm trying not to get splinters here. But yeah, speculative bubbles, you know, they again, like like recessions, really, they're sort of they obviously get a lot of attention from historians of all persuasions. They're fascinating things, you know, which in the aftermath reveal a kind of, you know, kind of madness in our collective nature, you know, the famous madness of crowds, which we can certainly argue seems to present in us still judging by some of the conversations on social media yeah. the big ones um they're a bit rarer than advertised there remember in spite of the proximity to mega bubbles in 2000 and 2007 
Most of the time, a step change in prices examined ex post reveals a step change in the underlying, i.e. a technological leap forward that kind of transforms profits. There's a guy, Walt Goetzman, uh, the Yale professor of finance, and he's done he's done loads of this. Do look it up. It's really interesting. There are some bits of overcrowding today, for sure. There usually are, as we've said before, parts of the US corporate sector might, again, part of its dominance, ex post, might be seen to rest a little precariously on an antitrust and regulatory environment, which could be in the process of changing. But these do tend to be pretty slow moving things. We're also unsure, you know, like many, whether this new batch of technologies will concentrate even more economic clout in terms of this, uh, you know, the Magnificent Seven, you know, the stocks you all mentioned at the start, those biggest seven stocks in the US who've really dominated uh, things in the last few years in particular, or whether it will prove a democratizing influence, you know, reigniting smaller companies' ability to compete with the big names. For what it's worth, there's a really good article in the Financial Times this week. I shared it on LinkedIn. It's uh, it's an interview with Eric Brynolfsson, who's one of the big names in the kind of, you know, the tech. He's, he's one of the sort of big thinkers in this space. And I, I think he's really interesting, uh, generally. So a good balanced view on what's going on. Yeah, I saw that. I do wonder if you ever sleep, Will, because it was certainly an early post. The early bird catches the worm, as they say. But um, I get a bad very early, Miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the stats around productivity were pretty incredible, though. But as you say, it was a... A nice balance. Um, anyway, the the share price is going back to those companies again of uh, you know those big ones, so Meta, Face, well Facebook, formerly known as Apple, Microsoft, you name it. The, the results were fairly mixed, weren't they? And some of the share price was a bit weaker off the off the back of that. Were there any concerning signs for you and the team in amongst all of that? Yeah, I mean there was some barnstormers and some there was it was it was a mix, like you say. I mean in aggregate, we we so far in looking at earnings season in general and you know focusing on the ones this week, we we couldn't find anything too alarming. I have to admit, you know certainly from a sort of macro top down perspective. I mean we have the good fortune to call on a lot of specialists uh, across Barclays and actually the wider industry for this. You know our scale does enable us to sort of get get our hands on lots of very good experts. It's a bit of a luxury, but from what we could see. The results in aggregate speak of still pretty formidable trends in revenues, cash flows, even dividends, actually, for the most part. So, so, so there's no doubt that expectations for some of these have got ahead of the reality. But I'm not sure there's anything too concerning all the same. For what it's worth, actually, we've written a little bit about some of the sort of, you know, the mega cap, uh, some of its predecessors at the moments when, you know, you had you know, a similar sort of period of dominance from these kind of massive, great big companies across sectors uh, back in the 1960s and 70s. It was called the Nifty 50 then. So we've written a bit about it. It's a really interesting episode just to sort of look at from historical parallels perspective. Okay. And then just going back a little bit, but unfortunately, I'm afraid I'm the bad guy sticking on the worries. You mentioned wobbling banks as one of the things getting nerves a bit jangled. And this is all tied up with the problems in US commercial property office and now also multifamily, right? Yes. So, yes, a bank in Japan um, and a bank in the US called NYCB were in the news with the problems both linked to US um, commercial property, as you said. We've talked about this and mentioned it in our you know, outlooks and various other comments as a, as a source of potential risk, cycle-ending risk, you could say. Um, so for office... You know, everyone will understand this. You know, we've all changed uh, across the world. And the US is the same. You know, that there, there, there's a difference in how much people are working from home. And that is creating difficulties in occupancy rates in offices. Um, and that, alongside step change in interest rates, alongside the fact that commercial property is full of kind of highly levered entities operating with very little margin for error, 
that's creating quite a difficult spot. And lots of people have pointed out that there is a lot of debt rolling over, you know, this year, which, you know, was uh, initiated at much lower interest rates. And so you're getting this kind of perfect storm of stress. And it's not hard for people to imagine how this would be quite a difficult period. A lot of the lending is coming from the regional US. Well, the regional US banks are on the hook for a lot of that debt, but it's obviously spread, you know, lots of places. And as NYCB illustrated this week, you know, you're seeing a bit of dyspepsia. I think the word would be probably a bit worse than that for, for NYCB. But the couple of points to make here are that NYCB does uh, represent quite a specific set of risks in the commercial property space. The read across to the rest of the sector is probably not as neat as the doomers would like. Also, this is not a problem being widely ignored or, or de-emphasized. You know, associated debt and equity instruments with commercial property are already braced for considerable damage. Um, and Silicon Valley Bank last year and the regional bank wobbles we saw, they, they certainly jolted the authorities and supervisors into action too. So I, I don't think this is going to be a sort of complacency one where people aren't looking closely at it. But yes, you never know. And, and I should just say also, you know, I mentioned lots of stock names in there. None of those are recommendations, obviously. We're <laughs> talking about stories rather than, uh, yes, particular buy or sell. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. So in short, one to continue to keep an eye on then, watch this space. Yeah, agreed. And remember that there are always things out there that could kill off the economic cycle. There are always things that are like bubbles too. Most of the time, it's about remembering the idea that the economy is pretty good at muddling through this stuff. And policymakers have much better informed playbooks generally too. That doesn't mean they'll make the right decisions, but the chances are a bit better, particularly in the wake of the financial uh, crisis, I think. Okay. And you mentioned policymakers there. So let's just unpick that next, given this week has also been about the central banks around the world giving us their latest. So why don't we start with the Federal Reserve over in the US? They held rates firm, but some did seem a little bit disappointed with the remarks made in the Associated Press Conference afterwards, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, yes. I mean, I think, you know, many investors spent the latter part of last year and the beginning of this year geeing each other up about the potential for ever earlier rate cuts. Well, we're all looking forward to it. <laughs> but yes, markets got quite excited too, you know, as you saw. You know, and there was some merit in this feed, to be honest. You know, inflation is looking increasingly well behaved in the US on many metrics. And Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, people were looking for him to possibly confirm that, you know, you might see rate cuts as early as March. But he sounded a more cautious note. And, and this is kind of in keeping with the idea that this is, you know, this generation's central bankers all fear the spectre of a guy called Arthur Burns, um, his tattered reputation. He's often seen as the guy who let inflation back out of the bag in the 1970s. And these guys, you know, understandably, you know, they'll have an eye on posterity and they will not want posterity to remember them as such. So perhaps, you know, extra caution warranted. There's also plenty of empirical work uh, that will be ringing in their ears. You know, there's something, and this is again, you know, if you need sleep um, or if you're <laughs> desperate, you can have a look at seven stylized facts from 100 years of inflation shops from the IMF if you're a real sucker for punishment. Um, uh, but I think, meanwhile, it, it's worth noting that the US economy is not currently showing many signs of choking on higher interest rates. That may still come, but the US economy is still humming, as we've discussed. And you can make an argument to say that policy is maybe not quite as asphyxiate as argued. Perhaps productivity growth is already picking up sufficiently to change the trend in growth and the ability of the economy to absorb higher interest rates we shall see we shall see time will tell and hopping back home across the ponds is it a sort of 
same, same case, for want of a better word, with the Bank of England, albeit with that rare split we saw? Yes, an interesting split. Um, the UK economy is certainly not motoring at the moment, but I, I don't think it's doing as badly as, again, the Dimmers will want. You know, remember, the UK economy, even relative to a world that's absorbed a lot of shocks, the UK economy has absorbed a lot of shocks uh, specific to the UK and global this last few years. And that might explain why the things are a bit more sluggish here for, for some part anyway. But inflation has come down a lot faster than the Bank of England forecasted in November and growth is a bit better. So I think mostly good news. We'll see when the first interest rate cut comes, but certainly we're in a better place than most imagined only a few months ago. Not that anyone will want to acknowledge that, of course. But, you know, as that vote split uh, suggested, you know, there's still some considerable uncertainty about the path of inflation from here. So humility remains appropriate. Yeah, and maybe a bit unfair for me to, to, to ask this, given your comment just there around humility, but looking likely for rate cuts to kick off in the summer? Uh, roughly speaking, yes. I mean, that's what our analysts are sort of su suggesting. We won't hold them to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've always got to have a little bit of humility about this stuff, the word again. Yeah, absolutely. But a seasonal ray of light for, for UK households to come, perhaps. Right, next on my list is the final area we should look at today. Not a new one, I'm afraid, and certainly won't be the last time we talk about this. The US election. I'm still getting a few questions here. Now, you guys, I know, have written and spoken about this quite a bit already, but it does look like we now know who will actually be competing for the Oval Office. And I'm seeing a scatter of trade recommendations from, well, all sorts of sources, really. So it might just be helpful for everyone if you could just perhaps outline a few summary points for, for us to focus on. Oh, yes. Good luck, Miles. Yes, I, yes, I really feel there's an awful lot of wasted breath and ink already, to be honest. Um, we're still some way off, and I'm really fed up of hearing about it. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm alone. Sorry. But uh, yeah, anyway, the first point is exactly that. This is in the latter part of the year. There's still a long way to go. And, you know, it's not controversial to say that these are two very old candidates, whether you adjust for population life expectancy or not. It is a necessarily grueling process. Perhaps that's part of the thing, you know, in order to uh, get into the Oval Office, you need to pass this incredible fitness test in many ways. So we want to be wary of assuming that health won't intervene at all, uh, which is, I know, a bit of a bleak point, but it's just something to remember, like of not wasting too much breath too early. Yeah. Point two, remember that the US Constitution is one of the oldest, I think even the oldest out there. So Norway is in second place, I believe. Again, someone will be able to correct me on this. If, uh, if uh, yeah, Please do email in, message in. But that Constitution is both hard to change, and was very much designed right at the beginning with the threat of autocrats and tyrants in mind, very in mind. Um, and furthermore, the controls, you know, that said power was distributed quite widely across the economy. And furthermore, the controls around the transfer of power following the shocking events of January the 6th, 2021, have been significantly tightened up. And yes, these measures, interestingly, they drew strong support from both Republicans and Democrats. So there's a gap possibly between words and actions somehow that you know you, you need to think about point three i'm going to do five so don't worry I'm yeah yeah, yeah. Point 0.96 and you're going to be here for you know the rest of the day but yeah remember i think you know this is again you know, no one will need reminding of this but with all election campaigns there are simply huge problems with translating promises into policy not just for the politicians, but for investors. And for investors, it's not just a matter of guessing whether the candidate means what he or she says, which, you know, you could say is particularly difficult in the context of such a famously mercurial campaigner as former President uh, Trump. 
They then have to work out how Congress will be populated following the elections to sort of try and work out whether those promises have a chance of getting through, being enacted, being made law. Both the House of Representatives and the Senate will be very closely fought uh, in all likelihood. Now, if you get all of that right, you deserve a medal already, but you still have to work out when and how the policy will be implemented and guess at potential challenges, NIMBYs, if you're looking at construction. or It's mostly a waste of precious time. Not easy to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, got it. You, you need to thread the needle, I guess. But yes, point four. Sorry. Yes, there are some things we can say about President Trump's second term, if that comes from the perspective of international policy, where, you know, remember, the president has slightly more unfettered powers, various acts and statutes can enable the president to do stuff. However, you know, are these ideas particularly investable? I'm still not really that sure. You know, you could make the assumption that President Trump wins and reappoints uh, Robert Lighthizer as his trade envoy. You could further argue that Lighthizer has written a book about exactly what he plans to do. I think it's called, uh, what is it called? No, uh, I'll have to remember, but I've actually forgotten it straight off the top of my head. But it is quite indicative and it's a focus on tariffs on any zone the US runs a deficit with, including Europe, etc., etc. There are certainly ways to get this done via executive order, like I say. But however, to reliably make money out of this, you would need to be able to argue that tariffs are the only game in town with regards to that particular asset or region. The technological context doesn't matter. Neither do the myriad other influences on returns that may well trump the level of tariffs. So I, you know, Yes, there are extreme cases, but, you know, I, I think handicap them uh, carefully in a way. And point five, you will be glad to know the final point. Your last one. Yeah, we've got there. We finally got there. But yes, it's often very difficult to fathom, given how newsworthy this election will be, is already. But even the most newsworthy presidents have failed to be the prime driver of either the economy or investment markets reliably. Economies are just not puppets on a string with the occupant of the Oval Office in the kind of Geppetto role. That's often even the case for command economies like China, where policymakers have a lot more control. But it's particularly the case in the US because of that kind of constitution, the way the economy is set up. And, and, and the reason you invest has nothing to do, literally nothing to do with who is in the White House, the Fed chair or any of the other seats of influence. It's the act of accessing the compounding forces of productivity growth. The key way a president could interrupt that for you is by making you disinvest out of fear uh, and sit on the sidelines while the compounding trick likely continues in your absence. That's even more the case now, as evidence that the fourth industrial revolution since the middle of the 18th century has finally arrived. Well done. Well done. <laughs> very, very good. And, and look, it, I guess the point here is it's, it's always interesting, isn't it, to see how the race plays out. But as you've alluded to, likely nothing too significant for, for long term investors then. Yes, uh, correct. Hopefully not famous last words. Correct. Good. Very helpful. Thanks, Will. Let's leave it there for today. But as ever, please do just get in touch if you'd like us to focus on any particular questions. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and speak next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.